Yeah, we're in James this morning in chapter 3. If you have your Bible or if you have your mobile device in the YouVersion app, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to events, that main menu down in the right corner, click events, and you'll see Emmaus Road Church. You can follow along in my sermon notes if that helps you. If you're someone who, who if you read and hear at the same time, it's, it's better for you. Feel free to do that. How, that's true. Yeah, you may turn on your mobile devices in the theater. You know, in one of Aesop's fables, there's this donkey who is walking through the woods, and as he's walking, he finds the skin of a of a lion. Hundreds had killed the lion and left the skin to dry in the sun. And so the donkey puts on the lion's skin and is delighted to discover that all the other animals are absolutely terrified of him. He's enjoying it so much and, and, and rejoicing in this newfound respect. The donkey just was overcome and he brayed out loud. And in that moment, he gave himself away by his voice. And the moral of this particular Aesop's fable is really clear. Fine clothes, what you wear, your outward appearance may disguise you, but what you say discloses who you are. It it, it reveals what's actually in your heart. Psalm 52, verses 1 through 4, says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Here's a more modern tale. When the, uh, when the Cornerstone Bank in Waco, Nebraska was robbed of some measly, paltry $6,000 back in November 2012, the bank employees were able to give the, the police a fairly good description of the teenage girl who pulled off the crime and the car she escaped in. Because as it turns out, the investigators didn't really need those descriptions from the bank because this girl, this thief, posted a uh, YouTube video entitled Chick Bank Robber boasting of her criminal prowess. So fanning out all this cash for the camera, um, she's she's this 19-year-old Hannah Sabata. She held up this sign and she's filming herself. I just stole a car and robbed a bank and now I'm rich. I can pay off my, my, my financial debt, my college debt, and tomorrow I'm going on a shopping spree. Um, later in the video, she holds up a sign that says, I told my mom today's the best day of my life. She thinks I met a new boy. Um, her, her criminal career was short-lived, you can imagine, because later that week, police took her into custody. Now, the number of people who've gotten into trouble because of something they've said especially putting it out there for the whole world to see. Like, how can we even count how many people have gotten in trouble for that? Lies, gossip, criticism, slander. Um, the, the, the damage that, that our mouths do, uh, not just about whom those words are spoken, but the, but the damage to the speaker as well, and that person's reputation as a, now as a slanderer or a gossip. And the words that come out of the mouth reveal the condition of our hearts and our minds. Jesus said that the words that come out of our mouths actually originate right here in our heart, in the core of who we are as people. And in our day, social media has become this incredible tool for both good and evil. It's, it's produced uh, an almost surefire, sure, surefire way to become famous. 
I'll give you the, I'll give you the, uh, the, the process here. It's pretty simple. Here's what you do. Simply disclose every embarrassing thing about your life publicly and do completely idiotic things while live streaming. And you will become famous. And, and we call it entertainment, but it's actually a corrosion on our culture and on our souls because it encourages people to share more and more when actually people have less and less to offer. And is there any shortage of people who are sharing their completely uninformed opinions? Or blabbing on and on when they don't have anything meaningful to say. Those who seem to know the least obviously don't know that about themselves, and yet they persist in being the loudest. And for for, uh, much of what passes for wisdom is actually anything but wisdom. And for all of the attempts uh, in our culture, in our day, for the thought police to try to restrict our speech, we actually become even more careless with our words. It's crazy. By way of contrast, um, I was reading this week, and I, I don't know much about past presidents. I don't study. I'm not a history buff, but I was intrigued by Pre- President Calvin Coolidge, who famously famously was known as the man of few words. His nickname was Silent Cal. And his wife, Grace, tells the story of a young woman who sat next to her husband at a dinner party. She told the president at the dinner party that she had made a bet with a friend that she could get the president to say at least three words during dinner. You know what he did? He didn't even turn and look at her. He just kept looking at his plate as he ate and he said, you lose. Two words. Beautiful. Brilliant. See, Coolidge understood the value of using words carefully, letting them be few in number. And in a time when people reveal their most personal information in the most public ways without any thought or hesitation, it's really important for us as the people of God to try to recapture this piece of wisdom and to wrestle with what it means to control our tongues. I was laughing this week. Where's Where's Kathy? where she, she's, oh, there you are, hiding. Kathy and I were, you know, we, we lived here this week in this space across the hall. And, and there were some moments of just absolute loopiness. Like you just get tired and you get loopy and you get cold and you start saying silly things. And we were laughing about this, this, this passage. And it's almost like James is given one of those commercials for medicine that'll kill you. You, you know, those commercials where they say, take this side effects may include death. It's like, I thought this was supposed to help me, not kill me, right? And so we, we, we developed this product called Lipinoff, right? Lipinoff and um, side, effects, side effects may vary, but also include scornful glances, loss of friendship, sleeping on the sofa, right? We, we, just, we just lip off at people. We just let the words fly out of our mouths. And, and uh, James is, is going to just nail this down for us. But the, but the big idea here this morning is if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, then you are Christ's ambassador. And you represent him as a first priority in every situation, in every endeavor, and in every relationship. So what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's actually in your heart. Therefore, uh, the what you speak, the way you talk, either validates or invalidates your ambassadorship in the eyes of the people around you. Are you tracking with that? You, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then the things coming out of your mouth are not honoring to the Lord. They're, they're vile and foul and tearing people down constantly. You're sending a mixed message. And so let's look at James chapter 3 this morning. 
We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Uh, Again, if you have your, your Bibles, follow along with me. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's go back. Look at verse 1 again. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So apparently the churches to which James is writing had too many men who were self-appointed teachers. Now, if you know your history, you know that in the Jewish synagogues, rabbis were very highly respected. The office of rabbi was um, was seen, uh, was one that parents coveted for their sons. They wanted their sons to, to rise to the, to the role of rabbi. And it was proper to respect the rabbis because of the sacred scriptures that they were expounding. But it was wrong to give the men the honor that God alone deserves. And so Jesus, uh, several times in the Gospels, confronted the Jewish leaders about this issue. In fact, in Matthew 23, this is what Jesus said. He said, they do all their deeds just to be seen by other people. And they make their phylacteries broad. The phylacteries was the, the box on the forehead that contained a little scroll, right? And, and had the word of God. And so they, they make it big. They wear these big things on their heads so people will see them. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, which is a word that just means teacher, by the way. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So so this idea of teaching, uh, and and we're in this series in James called Faith Works. Our faith works. And it it works itself out in the way that we live. And and so faith works when we pass on to others that which we've learned and received from God and his word. And that's a good thing. We should do that. And there's a certain uh, inherent prestige in being a teacher in the body of Christ. Presumably, if you're a teacher or a preacher or a pastor, you know more than those whom you teach typically. Uh, And that means in some way, the people that are under your teaching are going to look up to you. 
because of this, there's a built-in danger that some take upon themselves the office of teacher or preacher or pastor for wrong reasons, or that uh, those who took on the position for the right reasons can sometimes fall into pride and arrogance, and that does happen. And probably many of you have been around churches or seen that happen in the lives of people that you love. Now, some pastors are, are uncomfortable with being with people addressing them as pastor. And, and I'll just tell you, like, when I was a little weird at first, when I, when I became a pastor, coming out of 10 years of campus ministry, because it's like, hey, Mike, hey, Sadie, you know, we're going to college students. And then suddenly it's like, Pastor Mike, Pastor Satterfield. I, I cringe at that one. And that's like, don't use my last name. Oh, that's Pastor Satterfield. No, yeah, thank you, Jared. Yeah. So, so this, this, whole, this whole idea of, um, why don't you just call me by my name like everybody else? And I've grown accustomed to the title pastor, but I, w- I just want you to know, if you, if you call me pastor and whatever you add on to pastor, that's between you and the Lord, uh, wh- pastor, whatever, uh, I hope that it's because you respect the office of pastor, right? I- I'm not someone to be venerated. I'm quite comfortable with you calling me Mike or Sadie or Hey You, um, but I'm your brother in Christ, first and foremost. And I'm a member of Christ's body whom he has called to shepherd the flock and teach his word. But I don't have any prominence or a greater value than anybody else in the body of Christ. Um, even though we're not all called to be pastors or teachers, all of us do teach in some way. Especially if you're a parent, you can't get around it. You're teaching your children. You're, you're, you're shepherding your children. If you're a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, you teach. But not all of us, James says, should, should seek the position of a teaching role pertaining to the body of Christ because there's a greater degree of accountability because we should be adhering to the truth that we teach at a higher consistency, right? So, so we're under greater scrutiny. There's an added responsibility before God and man. So the teacher must be prepared to obey uh, and his or her walk must match his or her talk. If, if, um, if when I say her, I mean women in the context of teaching roles in the church, not pastoral roles. But James's point is that a person should not take on the role of teacher unless God has called that person to that role because they incur a stricter judgment. And he goes on to say in verse two, we all stumble in many ways. And and I think we all know that that's true from experience. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So James is not writing to us as somebody who's like arrived. He's not perfected this. He's not got it down pat. He's very conscious of his own shortcomings. And he says, we all, he's, he's, that's inclusive language on James's part. We all stumble in many ways. And, and so he, there's no false pretense of perfectionism. It's, it's likely, in fact, I would submit that James is thinking back to how he misspoke uh, about his half-brother Jesus. You know that James and Jesus uh, had the same mom, different dads, right? Tracking with that. Mary, Mary, Joseph, God. <laughs> so same mom, different dads. And, and you go back to Mark 3. You can see, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. In Mark 3, they went, then, then he went home, Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. There were so many people. And when his family heard about this, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. His own family was saying about Jesus, he's out of his mind. Was James among those who said, he's out of his mind? Probably. Probably. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And then Paul says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of Paul's writing, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, to one as untimely born, he appeared also to me. But Paul says, then he appeared to James. Jesus thought it was pertinent to to make a personal visit to his half-brother James and restore that relationship. James had come to faith and, and for him to see Christ resurrected. What, was this the reason why our Lord visited him in particular after the resurrection to restore him because of what he had said? Um, I think I think so. And to appoint him to a, to a role of teacher. But when I was a kid, um, I, you ever been to the doctor and then and then the doctor did the tongue suppressor thing with you? And to the point where you gag, like stick it way back there? Like what was the point of that? I think my doctor just liked to see me gag personally. But I remember being asked to stick out my tongue and it just seemed like it just seems like doctors have this magical power to tell a lot about your body just by the condition of your tongue. Doesn't it? Like, yeah, your tongue looks bad. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's, like, it's like a parable. My tongue is like a parable. It's like this mirror of a spiritual reality in the doctor's office. What comes out, and I think biblically, I'll just chase that analogy down a little bit. Think about it, because what comes out of your mouth is usually an accurate index of the health of your heart. Well, that's what Jesus says. Jesus said in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This little, I don't know, between three and eight ounces, depending on how fat your tongue is, it sets the course for a lot of stuff. It does a lot of stuff. So here, as a spiritual physician, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is engaging in a rigorous tongue analysis. He says, we all stumble. It's interesting that James says that all of us stumble in many ways, but he doesn't use it as an excuse. You'll hear people say, well, nobody's perfect, or I'm only human. Um, Both of those are feeble excuses that we, we use to rationalize our behavior. James just states this as a fact of life. There's, there's grace when we stumble. There's grace when we fail, but grace is not permission to disobey God or to say things that are going to hurt other people. The word of God was not given just to inform you of these truths. It was given to transform you from the inside out. It's not permission. In verse 2, he says, if you think you've mastered this, think again. He, he says, you see the word perfect there in verse 2? James uses that on purpose. Uh, He says, if you think you've mastered your mouth, then you are a perfect person. Now, if I polled the audience this morning (laughs) and said, um, I want to ask for a genuine show of hands, everybody in here who thinks that they're perfect, raise your hand. I suspect that no one would be dumb enough to do it. I could be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to know because I don't want to think less of you as a person. So don't raise your hand. But if you did raise your hand, You'd only be proving to the rest of us how wrong you are about that fact. This is an area where we all face the challenge universally. And nobody is exempt. The Greek word for perfect in verse 2 is the same word translated as mature back in chapter 1 and complete in chapter 2. Why is the man or woman who can control their tongue considered to be perfect? Because that person has a measure of control over every aspect of their body and their life. 
This is something we can never attain in this life, but something we should strive for and have increasing control over. The rabbis of old used to say the tongue was like an arrow. And the reason they said the tongue was an arrow rather than a knife is because it can kill at a distance. It can kill at a distance. And the deadliness of the tongue, you don't, you don't have to be near the victim to inflict a wound. Have you, have you ever been the object of someone's scorn? Their gossip, their schemes, their lies? You don't, you don't even have to be in the room, do you? You don't have to be present. It's a powerful weapon. It can kill your reputation. It can damage your soul even when you're all the way across town. The tongue is a deadly arrow. In fact, every one of us is carrying around a concealed weapon. I mean, think about that. All we have to do is open our mouths and release careless, ungodly words, and we are wounding people, hurting people. James goes on, verse 3. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. He says, look at ships also. They're so large, they're driven by strong winds, or guided by very small rudders, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, sustaining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast, bird, reptile, and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So this, this thing, this tongue, this small part of the human body sets so much in motion in yourself and in other people. The tongue can do great good and it can do great harm. James 3 gives some examples. He says, bits in the mouths of horses. Now, I hadn't spent any time around horses. And then when we moved here 10 years ago, our neighbors had horses at the time. They had three horses and two donkeys. And if you ever want to see a contrast, put donkeys next to horses. But we'd be sitting at the table with the kids when they were younger at breakfast time. And we could feel the horses before we could see the horses. Because they'd come galloping up the back of the property to the fence line, and you could hear them and feel the ground move, and then you'd see them come around the trees, and it was just fantastic. They're majestic, incredible animals, just so strong, rippling muscles as they gallop across the ground, and, and yet... James is saying, with one small piece of metal, you can control them and turn them in any direction you want to turn them. Just that one little thing makes all the difference in the world. Rudders that steer great ships, whether the sailing ships of old, or great ocean liners, or my stand-up paddleboard, uh, rudders are, are relatively small in comparison to the rest of the craft or vessel, but they do this amazing thing in the water. They, they direct the vessel wherever uh, you know, it's, it's going to go, regardless of how large it is. It's small in comparison. Sparks that burn down whole forests and destroy ecosystems. And by now, you might be seeing a pattern. Small, big impact. Small thing, Big impact. A spark is a very small thing, but the heat it contains can spread a fire over hundreds, even thousands of acres. So we, when we, we've all been through Washington summers in recent years where we're choking on smoke from the forest fires in Wenatchee and, and Winthrop and eastern Washington. And, and, and even what's happened in the, last, uh, in the last six months in Australia and what they've been through. Loss of life, property, land, animals, and on and on and on. You know, when the, when the conditions are right and it's dry, it only takes a little spark to get the fire going. And James tells us that the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. So verse 6 indicates that the problem with the tongue can be linked to a problem of the heart. And it occurred to me last night as I was wrapping this up. 
that this might be one of the reasons why God's word talks about itself in terms of water. Because there's not a person alive right now on the planet that could start a forest fire in western Washington today. Why? We're drenched to the bone. We have more rainfall. Everything is wet to the core. You couldn't start a fire in western Washington if you wanted to. So if God's word is living water to us, then we ought to be both taking it into ourselves and immersing ourselves in it daily. I suspect, if my analogy is correct and my logic is right, that the result would be that this hellish spark in our mouths might not burn so hot if we were immersed in the water of God's word. It wouldn't be so quick to to wound and burn other people and, and cause great damage because of our carelessness if we were immersed in the word of God more. Our words, even as Christ followers, are careless and hurtful, and they do damage that we don't know until much later in life. We don't see the damage that our words do. A little boy came to his mom and said, Mommy, can I go outside and help Daddy? He's putting the snow chains on the car. I know all the words. (laughs) If you put on snow chains, you know which words. I know all the words Daddy uses to get the snow chains on. Remember those who come behind you who are listening to you, whose whose Lives are impacted by your words. Even dumb animals can be tamed, James says, but not the tongue. It sets the course for our life. Small thing can do horrendous damage to others. It's full of deadly poison. So look at verse 9 to 12, and we'll we'll wrap up the, the text here. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You know, fruit is really the heart of the issue here for James. And and he's really asking us rhetorically, what kind of fruit are your words producing? What kind of fruit is coming about in your life, in your family, in the lives of people who are consistently around you as a result of the words that you use? And at this point, some of you are asking yourselves, well, if nobody can control the tongue, why bother trying? I mean, let's just let loose our tongues and then fall back on the grace of God. You know the only problem with that? Jesus. Jesus. In Matthew 12, Jesus is addressing a group of people who are always looking for loopholes. And he says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil things out of the evil that's stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Well, I just read that sentence again. I don't, th- I don't think some of you heard that. Every person will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Now just think about that. I, that's terrifying. There's an old adage. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. 
I react strongly to that. I react strongly to that because we live in a culture uh, that's become more snowflakey than symmetrical frozen water crystals are snowflakey. Um, but in our culture, words are conflated with actual violence. And as much as I'm determined to push back on that diluted insanity, James is clearly making a point that I cannot, we cannot afford to miss or uh, push aside. Words can and do damage people, institutions, organizations, reputations, relationships, on and on. We've all done it to someone. We've all been on the receiving end of it. And James is telling us that to tame the tongue, it is essential that we recognize that we will be held accountable for every word that comes out of our mouths. Every word that we say, we will give an account to God. So stop right where you are right now and just think about that for just a moment. If you died right now and you're standing before God this morning, instead of trying to figure out lunch plans, like God reaches down and pulls out of your mouth one of those old tape recorders. Some of you don't even know what that is because you're too young. So, so audio recording device, right? And pushes playback and, and, he, and you just listen to the last 72 hours of your life. How nervous would you be? How nervous would you be? How uncomfortable would that make you to think about just giving an account for the last 72 hours? The situation may feel overwhelming, but it's not without hope. In fact, Proverbs 15 says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Perverseness in it will break the spirit, but a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We're not without hope. The tongue is an instrument of extraordinary power out of all proportion to its size. Whatever its anatomical connections, its most significant connection, Jesus says, is to the heart. Because whether a heart is hardened by sin or regenerated by grace will determine what the tongue says, right? There's a story of an old barber who'd been gloriously saved in this old-fashioned revival meeting in the 1920s. And the next morning he went to work and he sharing his faith to, to witness to the lost. And he was just excited, ready for the first customer to come in that day. And that customer came in, the barber began to shave him. He's laying back in the chair and he's shaving him with a straight razor. And and the barber's trying to muster up the words to say. He wants to share the gospel and he wants to get it right. Finally, he just stopped what he's doing and stood over the man. He's got the straight razor in one hand. And and as he's poised there with the man's throat exposed, he says, are you prepared to meet God? (laughs) Right heart. Wrong words in the moment. Just, it's like think it through just a little bit. We want it. When, the, when God's moving us, we want, we want to use the right words. We want to say the right things. We just need to, we need to yield ourselves to God. Colossians 3, Paul says, Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly teaching you, admonishing one another with all spiritual wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know where we get most of our uh, God words and our spiritual words? From our music. We got to sing the songs of Jesus together. He says, do all that with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. And whatever you do, whether it's in word or in deed, he said, do everything in the name of Jesus. So whatever you say, say it in the name of Jesus. He said, give thanks to God the Father through him. So we got to understand the power of our words. Uh, Our tongues are between two and six ounces of muscle. Um, Whether they're found in the biggest, strongest bodybuilders or the frailest little children, this this thing gets more exercise and less self-control than any other muscle in our body. 
And we've got to be conscious about what comes out of our mouths before it comes out of our mouths because you can squeeze the tube of toothpaste real easy, but it's hard to get the toothpaste back in the tube. And we've got to get our mouths under control. How do we do this? Well, by submitting ourselves to God and taking a steady diet of his word. We've got to be in his word every day. And if you're saved by the blood of Jesus this morning, you are Christ's ambassador. You represent him as a first priority in every situation, in every endeavor, in every relationship. And whatever comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. And therefore, what you say will either validate or invalidate your ambassadorship in the eyes of those around you. We're going to take a moment this morning. We're going to respond to the word that we've heard today. And we respond every week, usually in three ways. We respond by prayer, we respond by singing, and we respond by going. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come join me on the stage here as we respond in praying. So would you just bow with me as we pray together? And, and I'll, just, I'll just give you some thoughts, and then you take those thoughts, and you, you make them your own, and you pray these prayers unto God right where you're seated. This word that you've given us this morning, Lord, the, the image of a bit in a horse's mouth or a, a little rudder on the back of a great ship or a tiny spark that starts a great fire, uh, Lord, help us to internalize those things as it pertains to our own mouths, our own tongues. Jesus, this morning we ask that you would purify and sanctify, make holy our tongues. And we admit to you, we recognize that's a process, but we submit to you right now as your people and ask you to do that in our lives. Make our mouths holy. Just pray that right where you are. Jesus, we ask you not just to make our mouths pure and that we wouldn't say hurtful, mean, bad, sinful things, but that we would say good, praiseworthy, uplifting, blessed things to the praise and glory of your name and and make the gospel known to people with these mouths you've given us, Lord. Pray that. Ask him to do that in you right now. God, we thank you for your word and for the ability by your spirit in us to respond to your word. And we ask for you to give us the grace to tame our tongues by the power of the spirit. In the flesh, it's impossible, but by your spirit, all things are possible, Lord. And we ask you to help us in these days where our culture is more and more apt to say almost anything. Lord, help us to be a people whose words are pure and praiseworthy and honoring to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.